Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's mormondiscussionpodcast, all one word, dot org. You can do this for as little as $1.50 a month or $12 a year. And this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion. This is Bill Real. Today you're going to hear from Ryan. He is going to share with you some thoughts on a program that may appear from time to time here on Mormon Discussion called Stage 4 Mormons. I hope you'll give Ryan a chance. This is his first episode. I think it's well done. He is touching on the idea behind Fowler's stages of faith and speaking to those in Stage 4, which is that turbulent time, moving from a simple black and white way of thinking to recognizing the nuance in the world and specifically within Mormonism. So I'll turn the time over to Ryan. Uh, God bless each of you. Appreciate you as my listeners. If you've got any ideas or thoughts, please uh, send them on to me. And with that, uh, Stage 4 Mormons. Hello, everyone. I'd like to start off uh, today in an attitude of gratitude. First, I'd like to thank Bill Real for letting me have some time on this wonderful podcast he's created. Hundreds and perhaps even thousands of Latter-day Saints in the developed nations of the world are having a really hard time right now. There are many people who are doubting their faith. I think it's fantastic that Bill has uh, taken the time to build a podcast that caters to people who really, truly want to stay in the LDS church, but who also want to stay LDS in a way that feels honest and sincere. That's admirable. I think there's a great need for this podcast. I feel very grateful to to be participating. I'd also like to thank you. There are a lot of other things you could be doing right now, but you're choosing to listen to this podcast. Time is one of the few truly scarce commodities that exists, and I consider it uh, an honor that you give me some of that precious time. During the rest of this podcast, my aims will be to engage you, inform you, challenge you, and in the end, uh, maybe even help you with your own uh, faith crisis or help you to help someone else in their faith crisis. I sincerely hope that whatever the outcome, by the end of this podcast today, you, you feel like your time was well spent. So, I'd like to spend some time talking about Fowler's stages of faith. Dr. James Fowler is a psychologist and a theologian and a professor who works at Emory University in Georgia. I think it's important to point out that uh, he's not LDS. But uh, you'll, I hope you'll see that uh, he, this man has done some wonderful research and he's uh, done a lot of good work that can help people uh, many who have many different types of beliefs. Uh, I heard about Fowler's Stages of Faith first in a Mormon Stories podcast years ago. Uh, there were a couple of LDS guys who had been go- who were going through a crisis of faith, and they found. Fowler's uh, stages of faith to be enlightening and very, very accurate in the way they felt and in this, their own personal stages of faith. And since then, I've heard lots of people reference them, and I find them, them very, very good. And they come from a book that Fowler read, unsurprisingly called Stages of Faith, The Psychology of Human Development and the Quest for Meaning. He explains the the research that he's done 
in analyzing and documenting the different stages of belief which people go through or can go through during the course of their lives. So I'm sorry if you've already heard this. Uh, lots of people have heard an overview or um, maybe they've actually looked at the book, but I'd really like to delve in and, and give a more detailed explanation of the uh, of the different stages of faith. I've seen a lot of people who seem to misunderstand what these stages of faith are about. And so I think some details will will really help us out. Uh, a more detailed understanding of Fowler's stages of faith has helped me personally understand how human belief works, whether you're a Mormon or a Muslim, a Baptist or a Buddhist, or even if you're a fan of the Dallas Cowboys versus being a fan of the San Francisco 49ers. The first thing that was really enlightening to find out is that Fowler's stages of faith don't just apply to religious faith. Uh, I think he probably would have been better off calling them stages of belief. So these stages of belief apply virtually the same way uh, to religious belief as they do to a belief in anything that's bigger or greater than ourselves as just individuals with individual lives. Stage one is called the intuitive or projective faith. It's basically what happens when when a kid is somewhere between three and seven years old. Uh, what they're doing in that period of faith is they're just noticing what's important around them. They're noticing religious figures, religious icons, religious places, and so they rec- they start recognizing names like Jesus, Buddha, Muhammad, heaven, hell, reincarnation, crucifix, CTR ring. They just learn to identify these things. Fowler's stages really apply to all kinds of belief. So at the same time, kids are recognizing all these religious words and symbols and such. They they also recognize the nation's flag. And uh, maybe they recognize your favorite team, athletic team's mascot, or perhaps even the words Republican and Democrat. Now, they recognize that these things are important, but they don't really know why. Or they have very, 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 very simple explanations for why these things are important. So when you ask them, like, you know, who is Jesus? Jesus, um, you know, Jesus is Jesus. I see Jesus in church. Okay, that's Jesus. And, you know, they point to a picture of Jesus, a drawing of Jesus. Why is Jesus important? Jesus loves me. And, you know, if you press the kid, the kid's either going to say, I don't know why Jesus is important, or the... They'll just start imagining silly things. That's that's stage one. And uh, a person's belief starts to develop out of stage one and into stage two uh, around the age of ten. Children aren't satisfied with pure imagination anymore or vagaries. They want some more concrete answers for their questions. So they they it's not just about identifying religious symbols or symbols of belief or just symbols or words that are important, buzzwords in their lives. Uh, they want to know why these things are important. And that why usually comes in the form of stories. So they'll learn about the story of Jonah and the whale. They'll learn stories about George Washington. Maybe they'll even learn stories about famous plays that athletes have uh, done on you know sports athletic teams that you like. Uh, a famous catch or a famous uh, touchdown or, or goal or home run or something. They'll be able to rehearse those, spit those stories back at you. All these stories are taken at face value, 100% literally, and they're not really analyzed much. The kid doesn't break them down. They're just the kid. The kids are just focused on learning the stories. So they go from I can identify Jesus, I can say Jesus loves me, and well, now I can tell the story. In stage two, they they can tell the story about uh, Jesus healing the blind man, or uh, Jesus 
feeding uh, thousands of people with the, the loaves and the fishes. They, they start learning these stories, and that helps them understand why these things are important. Uh, I think it's worth pointing out that it's at this stage, in stage two, when one of Dr. Fowler's subjects started to envision God as being much like her parents. This is something that I've noticed in recent years. Uh, people, Many people who have a hard time with religion, or really their added, with their attitudes and beliefs regarding um, an organization of some sort, have had difficult relationships with representatives of that organization, particularly their parents and particularly their fathers. So I thought that was worth mentioning. A few people continue... Uh, a few people will actually continue into stage two into their teens, and an even smaller number of people will just continue on to stage two indefinitely in their lives. But almost everybody in Dr. Fowler's research transitioned transitioned into stage three around puberty. Stage three is when people really start to assert their identities. I'm Latino, I'm Italian-American, I'm African-American, I'm a Republican, I'm a Democrat, I'm a Dodgers fan, I'm a born-again Christian, I'm a Mormon, I'm a Muslim, I'm a Hindu. They really start asserting themselves. And this is the first time a person really starts to seriously, seriously identify with people outside the context of family and close friends. But as you might have noticed in my examples, these identities are still linked to other people. Why have you adopted the identity of a diehard Dodgers fan? Well, probably because your dad, your brothers, or your best friend already had that identity. You've adopted a belief system, in this case, the belief that the Dodgers are the best baseball team in the world, and that is intricately linked to your relationship with other people. Stage 3 believers also decide not just you know that they are believers in something, but what kind of believers they're going to be. So as Mormons, they might decide they're going to be what they consider hardcore. They're going to have seven kids. They're going to wear, their men, they're going to wear dark suits to church. Their women, they're going to wear floral dresses and never ever say anything more offensive than, oh my heck. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm making a caricature here. I know that. But I mean, you know, that's that's the kind of thing that they, they start really thinking about and decisions they start making. Or that they're going to be a little bit more laissez-faire Mormons, you know. State conference, general conference, mm, good excuse to go camping. Uh, I read the Book of Mormon once. I'm good. I believe it. It's good. I'll accept a calling, but the new primary, no thank you. That's just crazy. <laughs> okay, so, you know, they start to decide what type of believers they're going to be. Again, this doesn't just apply to religious believers. It can apply to people with uh, political ideologies. So, I'm, I'm Democrat. I'm really liberal. I go to all the conventions. I go to rallies. I go to protests. I have a a, a sticker of a donkey with the uh, red, white, and blue donkey, and I put it on the top of my laptop, you know, they start really assert themselves as hardcore uh, Democrats. Or they're more armchair uh, Democrats. Uh, they complain about Republicans by watching MSNBC, but they don't really do anything more than that. So they decide what type of believers they're going to be. And I'd like to uh, pause here and point out that, uh, and talk a little bit about the way these three, these people in these three stages deal with conflicting beliefs or beliefs that conflict their beliefs, right? So stage one and stage two believers will either mix the contradictions into one big faith system or get terribly confused. That makes sense, doesn't it? We try to keep things simple for kids because, you know, if you teach kids nuanced belief, it's either going to go over their heads or they're going to get confused. Uh, But stage three believers are often adults or the young adults at least, and they tend to dismiss contradictions. 
either as being unimportant or they'll just ignore them. They'll go into denial. I once had a conversation with a wonderful young couple that was excited because the husband was about to graduate from medical school and I rather stupidly started asking the wife a number of uncomfortable questions. I, uh, I started talking about the corruption that exists in government, uh, you know, regarding the pharmaceutical companies and the American Medical Association, lobbying efforts, and I brought up the number of people who die every year by not, not, not by overdosing, but by taking the prescribed doses of medications that their uh, fully competent doctors were prescribing to them. And uh, you know, I, I really asked a lot of other things that now in retrospect I realize were quite impolite of me to ask this nice young woman whose husband was about to graduate from medical school. Thankfully, she was very gracious, but I'll never forget her answer to me. She said, eh, we just don't think about that. <laughs> and I've had many similar conversations with people about religion, politics, economics, philosophies, you name it. Uh, I have a nasty habit of playing devil's advocate, ask my wife. Uh, so... If someone is really liberal, I will often bring up conservative arguments. If they're conservative, I bring up liberal, liberal arguments. If they like natural New Age medicine, then I bring up the medical establishment's arguments. Uh, you get the idea. And I don't do it to start a fight or anything. I, I just like hearing why people believe the things that they believe. In any case, I've seen a, lots of people do exactly what this nice lady did when I questioned her belief in the medical establishment. They just simply dismiss conflicting belief systems entirely. The reason they dismiss conflicting belief systems, or in other cases they get aggressive, but they don't take them very seriously. The reason they do this is because beliefs don't exist in a vacuum, folks. These beliefs are directly linked to their relationships with other people. And, even more importantly, to their own individual identities. And a person's identity and a person's relationship with those closest to them, that's something that people generally take very uh, sacred, that's sacred ground. So in my work to help businesses improve relational interaction between employees to improve performance, I found that contention between two people gets particularly ugly when one person challenges another person's identity. So what does that look like? Uh, maybe one, one colleague says about another, oh, she thinks she's so smart but she never even finished college. Well, let's say that this person who has just received the insult or overheard the insult of not being, you know, you think you're smart, but you didn't even go to college. Let's say that person has accepted as part of her identity that she's clever. She says clever things. So being clever is part of her identity then a statement like that is going to be very painful to hear. What I've found is that people instinctively attack another person's identity when they really want to hurt someone. So the woman whose identity as a clever person or a smart person is challenged, and she may respond by saying something like, well, what would a stupid cowgirl like you know about education? Do your hometown even have a high school? Now, she's not only insulted this other woman's identity as a cowgirl, she's also insulted her hometown. Attacking someone's identity is actually one of the worst things you can do. This is part of why the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is so intense. It's not just about religion. It's not just about who gets to live where. It's about two different groups trying to assert their national identities in a zero-sum game. According to the way many Israelis and Palestinians view, view this ongoing conflict, one group can't have a national identity if the other group also has the national identity. At a certain psychological level, they're fighting for the right to exist as a people. So if you take that into consideration, it makes sense that a stage three believer would go into denial if his or her belief system were significantly challenged. 
Denial is the mind's emergency safety switch, the switch that gets flipped when an idea is so overwhelming that it threatens a person's ability to function. We're all in denial about something. Our weight, our age, our professional competence, our children's behavior, the nutritional value of what we feed our families, etc., etc. So I think we need to be careful about how much we criticize stage three believers. One more note before we move on to stage four. Uh, most people who belong to organizations like churches, clubs, PTAs, uh, people who are active in political parties, they're, they're, for the most part, stage three believers. One thing I find fascinating is that after transition, transitioning into stage three, a person may never develop into a more complex stage of faith, ever. They become Republicans and they die Republicans without ever taking the Democratic Party's arguments seriously. Uh, these people convert to Buddhism in their late teens or early 20s, and that's it. They're done. They've, adopt, they've adopted their identity as a Buddhist. Their friends are Buddhists. They go on meditation retreats together. They go to Buddhist festivals together. They talk about teachings from the Buddha's life and how those teachings apply to their lives. That's their identity. They're comfortable with it. And the idea of fundamentally changing it is scary. But then we have the stage four believers. Again, it's not necessary. Most people transition naturally into stage three, but uh, those who not everyone does transition into stage four. And those who develop and transition to stage four generally start this process in their early 20s, though it sometimes happens later in life. In the first three stages of faith, people believe pretty much everything that everyone else in their groups believe. And the first three, the first three stages are really about learning to fit in to our given belief systems. But stage four believers turn off the emergency switch that protects their beliefs from outside influences and therefore their own identities. Uh, they then take a proverbial scalpel and dissect their own personal beliefs. This leads them to an awareness of the limits and contradictions that exist within their belief systems. They're the ones who say, hey, uh, my basketball team's never won a championship. In fact, the past five years have been pretty bad. How can I really call them the best team in the world if they've never won? They're not really winning much. A stage four Democrat might say, uh, my party says it protects minorities, but has done almost nothing to help Latinos. How can they say they protect minorities when they leave America's biggest minority group out in the cold? Stage four Mormons are the ones who say, if the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the only church with the authority from God, then why are there so few Mormons? If God wants everybody to be Mormon, then why aren't there more of us? So the first three stages of faith are about feeling more and more part of the group and realizing your role in the group of believers. Stage four is about learning to feel comfortable with beliefs that are personal, individual, not part of the group. Fully developed stage four believers learn to have an independent faith. They take responsibility for their faith. So stage five is even rarer than stage four. It's not impossible to transition into stage five before middle age, but according to Dr. Fowler's research, it's extremely uncommon. Stage five believers look at faith with what I'd like to call proverbial bifocals. While looking through one lens, they can see the inherent limits or oversimplifications that they had discovered in stage four. It's not like they forget them. 
But the amazing thing about stage five believers is that they can simultaneously, while looking at the limits, oversimplifications, contradictions, they can simultaneously look through another lens in their bifocals and find transcendent values and worthwhile lessons in those same beliefs. So an example of a stage five believer uh, and the way such a believer would look at the story of Noah would be like this. Uh, looking through one lens of their proverbial bifocals, they see everything that doesn't work with the story. Uh, you know, uh, rains creating a flood like that and covering the whole earth and the lack of anthropological and archaeological evidence and uh, how are we going to get the type of genetic diversity from so few animals and not all the species of the animals are even represented in the ark, and you, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but what makes a stage 5 believer different from a stage 4 believer is that the stage 5 believer will also find great value in the lessons taught by this story. A stage 5 believer might say, well, what this story is really about is that you know it's an example of how God doesn't just care about his children, he also cares about his creations. Uh, the animals are important to God. He spares them, at least some of them. God gives value to animal life. That's what this is teaching us. Or maybe they'll look at the story of Noah and say, oh, this is an example of, this. what this is teaching us is that God will provide a way for the righteous to be saved, even if the wicked are destroyed. God's willing to work miracles in our lives if we're willing to follow him. Or maybe they'll look at the story and say, God is patient and long-suffering, but he won't let people misbehave indefinitely. After sending his servants to preach repentance, there comes a time when he eventually is going to intervene. So this is the way a stage five believer might look at the story of Noah in, uh, as opposed to the way a stage four believer looks at uh, the story of Noah and the ark. So people in stage stages three and four will call this paradoxical. But guess what? Stage five believers embrace paradox. And this is perhaps why Fowler calls stage five the second naivete. Um, so the best way I can think of just Describing these stages up to stage five to help us understand stage five is by comparing, comparing faith development to academic development. So stage one, the stage one of academic development would just be noticing that there are things called letters and numbers, memorizing them. And stage two is about the, the equivalent in Fowler's stages of faith would be basic literacy. So you're not really functional, but you can sound out words. You've memorized some math facts. You know, you know that 2 plus 3 is 5, but, you know, you're not really functional yet. Stage 3 is kind of like a high school level of academics. Stage 4 is a college level of academics, really learning to analyze and take things apart. Stage 5 is like getting into the job market after college. You realize that the skills and knowledge you gained in college are really only going to take you so far in the real world. In the job market, you start to learn that other things are valuable um, as much or more so than what you learn in college, like maybe making connections with people at work is important. Sometimes it's not what you know, it's who you know. Maybe that liberal arts degree hasn't made you, uh, made you all that marketable, so you start a small business with some friends. What you learned in college has shaped you in important ways. You wouldn't change that. You value what you've learned. You've just moved on and found that in the job market, uh, it's not sufficient to just use what you learned at school. So the first four stages build into each other, but stage five is about transcendence. It's about looking beyond um, and looking for the stories and the meanings and the values behind the beliefs. So that's stage five. Developing into stage six is extremely rare. Very, 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 very few people ever do it. 
So if stage four is like going to college and stage five is like getting a job, stage six is like being Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple. What does Steve Jobs do? Uh, he completely disrupted the industry he worked in. The way we use phones, surf the internet, listen to music, all of that and other things will just never be the same because of this man. You see, all believers from stage one to stage five are trying to make sense of how to function within the belief system or belief systems around them. And to use the, the job uh, analogy again, uh, they're all trying to figure out how to make a better CD player. Stage six believers completely disrupt and change those belief systems. Change them forever. So they're like Steve Jobs. They say, mm, no, let's use an iPod. Let's use an MP3 player. Let's, it's not enough to have this, uh, rather large or medium sized machine that you have to take around and you have to be very careful with, otherwise it'll skip and it's only gonna hold, you know, 12, 13 songs. No! You can have a thousand songs in your pocket. Just change it completely. We're not even interested in CD players anymore. Hardly. Uh, I think another analogy that can be helpful in understanding how this works it can can uh, be taken from the sci-fi movie The Matrix. In this movie, The Matrix is a big computer program that people are hooked up to in a sort of shared dream reality that's supposed to mirror the USA in 1999. Most people aren't even aware that they're in hooked up into The Matrix, into this computer program. So they have to follow the computer program's rules, which simulate things like gravity and physical touch. So what that means is, you know, you can't just fly. You levitate. You can't walk through walls or transform yourself into a cat because that all goes against the Matrix rules, the program rules. So people in stages one through three are kind of like the people in the movie The Matrix who are unaware that they are living in this sort of computer-assisted shared dream experience. People in stage four are kind of like those few characters in the movie who suspect that there's a Matrix they and they eventually discover that what the that what the Matrix allows them to see and experience isn't the whole truth. Stage 5 believers are like the characters Morpheus and Trinity in this movie. They can live and function within the Matrix, but they can also live and function with outside the Matrix. When they're in the Matrix, they can bend the rules of the program. They can move really fast. They can jump like 20 yards in a single bound. Uh, they can punch through walls. But even though they can bend the rules of the program, and do lots of amazing things, they can't break the rules of the system. They're still part of the system. They're still bound by the system. Stage six believers are like the character Neo. Neo doesn't have to follow any of the Matrix rules. He can fly. He can catch bullets, stop bullets in midair just by thinking. He can see through walls. He has the power to reimagine the Matrix and change it completely. Consequently, the Matrix tries to hunt him down and kill him because he threatens the existence of the whole program. So, lots, and st uh, lots of people in Stage 4 would like to change the world the way that st Stage 6 believers do, but according to Dr. Fowler's research, Stage 4 believers suffer from a problem that keeps them from becoming inspiring leaders. That's narcissism. Dr. Fowler's research showed that narcissism is very common among stage four believers. They want everyone else around them to change, but why do they want them to change? Because they just think people in stage three are annoying. They need to grow up or they need to get smart or whatever. And so it's really hard to be inspiring when you're looking down on the people that you're trying to inspire. 
So most stage four believers are never really able to mobilize more than a small group of fellow complainers. Kindness and compassion come more easily to stage five believers, but they also tend to be too esoteric to inspire an entire movement that replaces an old way of thinking. An interesting finding from Dr. Fowler's research is that people in different stages have an extremely hard time understanding people who are in a different stage. An example of this uh, that you can look up yourself if you like was uh, in, a, in an interview between John DeLynn on the Mormon uh, Stories podcast and uh, the academic Richard Bushman who wrote the book um, Joseph Smith, Rust Stone Rolling. And I don't even remember what it was that they were talking about specifically, but John DeLynn was was asking uh, Bushman about something that, that seemed kind of paradoxical. And Bushman just kind of chuckled in a very sagely grandfatherly way and said, well, uh, life is full of paradoxes. And uh, it, I'm probably reading into this, but what it seemed that he was saying was, uh, gosh, John, you're a smart guy. I would have thought you'd known that. <laughs> it was interesting for me to see these two men who were smart, uh, but at different stages of belief, kind of having a hard time understanding one another and the perspective of the other. Stage three believers look at stage four believers and they see a bunch of traitors. Uh, you know, you're complicating things, you're, you're betraying the faith, you're switching teams. Stage four believers look at stage three believers and they'll see a bunch of idiots. You're oversimplifying things, you don't want to see the truth. Uh, stage five believers look at people in stages three and four and they wonder what all the fuss is about. And then people in stages three and four look at sta uh, stage five believer and tell them the fish are cut bait. Are you with us or are you against us? Either you believe what we believe or you don't. How can you see value in what we both think when we're saying contradictory things? And the stage five believer says, well, you know, I see the value in what you're both saying. And they're all being honest. They're just they're looking at things entirely from their own point of view and they're not taking the time to see how other people understand things. But what's really interesting, fascinating, and impressive about these rare six um, stage six believers is that they can work with people from any stage of belief. They rise above these misunderstandings. On the one hand, they have the fire and zeal of the first four stages, but on the other hand, they retain stage five's ability to look beyond simple differences and to transcend what everybody else is thinking in the normal black and white argument. Uh, stage six believers look at humanity as being part of one big family. They don't really care much about tribes, ethnicities, political parties, religious denominations. They want to disrupt the current belief systems to create something that's bigger and better for everybody. They're motivated by altruism. They're motivated by compassion. That, and compassion for everyone. That's why they want to change the belief system. Uh, a couple of good political Examples of stage six belief are Nelson Mandela and Mahatma Gandhi. These people wanted to, wanted their political political systems that really would be better for everybody. Gandhi was a Hindu, but he wanted to make sure that the Muslims and Christians and other religious believers uh, in his country would be equal citizens in the new India that he was trying to create. Nelson Mandela went through went to great lengths to make sure that everyone knew that there was still room in South Africa for white people. Gandhi, uh, Gandhi encouraged good relations with uh, the British, and Mandela encouraged good relations between South Africans of all colors. These men disrupted their political systems in a way that was motivated by a desire to improve everyone's life. As you can imagine, this kind of radical belief is not accepted by people who benefit from the status quo. Uh, 
Stage six believers are almost, well, no, they are. They're always severely persecuted, uh, for trying to turn things up, uh, turn things upside down. And a, a religious example of this is, uh, religious believer is the way Christ handled, uh, the situation with, uh, the adult, the woman caught in adultery. The woman, you know, he, the group of, uh, Pharisees, I think it was, that bring this woman caught in adultery to Christ. And they try to stick him in that typical black and white situation. You know, either you're merciful and you contradict the law, or you're hardcore and you kill this woman. Have her stoned. And I think this is just such a wonderful example of stage six thinking, as I understand it anyway. And Christ says, he who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. It just transcends everything that's going on, the way everyone else is thinking. And then, 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 you know, the mob leaves and the woman says, looks, uh, looks up at him and Christ says, you know, woman, where are your accusers? She says, you know, what man accuseth thee? And she says, no man, Lord. And he said, neither do I. Now what man, what, what man condemneth things? She says, no man, Lord. And he says, neither do I condemn thee. Go thy way and sin no more. Such a beautiful story about him about lots of things really, but about, and it's an example of Christ, uh, changing the system, transcending the system, and replacing it with something better, better for everybody. Uh, but because these, 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 these people who just destroy the status quo, uh, end up ruffling a lot of feathers, they're, they're, they're persecuted, as I said before. So Gandhi and, 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 uh, Mandela were in prison for lengthy periods of time. Uh, they were severely beaten. Gandhi was eventually assassinated, and Christ was crucified. So, uh, this this is pretty typical for stage six believers. A sobering thought for me, and I hope it is for you too, is that the people who persecuted Christ and these other great people, Mandela and Gandhi, uh, they're generally stage three or sometimes stage four believers. It's something for us to keep in mind. So, why have I decided to take all this time going over Fowler's stages of faith? Uh, well, it's for a few reasons. The first one is that even though lots of people online who are going through faith crises find Fowler's stages of faith useful, as I said before, I think they misunderstand them. I read a lot of comments like, uh, you can't be a religious person and still be uh, in stage four. I, I I don't agree with this. I don't agree with it because um, <laughs> you've lost your faith. Uh, I mean, developing into stage four could, I suppose, very well lead to atheism and has... But it's not an inevitability, and there are plenty of examples of religious people who have developed into healthy stage four believers, and they're happy members of their faith communities. One example of this, uh, of such a person, is someone who's already been interviewed here on the Mormon dis- on, on Mormon discussions, and that's Brad Wilcox. So if you if you go back and you listen to Bill's interview with Brother Wilcox, you'll hear how Brother Wilcox had a major crisis of faith while he was on his mission in Chile. He just, he hasn't just talked about that with Bill, he's talked about that on a number of occasions. And he questioned, uh, during this time, he questioned Joseph Smith, he questioned, questioned the role of Christ, and even the existence of God. And, uh, you know, that's actually pretty common. I found it remarkable, uh, how many Latter-day Saints who leave the church become either agnostics or atheists, since they can't make Mormonism work in their minds, they seem not to be able to make other religions work for them either. So what Brother Wilcox went through is somewhat common. But Brother Wilcox is a positive, 
active, devout Latter-day Saint, who I admire very much. And uh, he's a very good example of someone who's transitioned into stage four belief and not just survived it, but come out much, much, much better for it. So here's another reason why I don't think that stage an inevitability of stage four uh, is atheism. And that is, according to Dr. Fowler's research, he found that you can't get uh, from one you can't get from one stage to another uh, and skip a stage. You, you've got to go through each one uh, successively. So you can't get into stage five without going through stage three, and you can't get into stage six without going through stage four, according to his research. So how does one? So does that mean that in order to go into stage four, you lose religion, and then in stage five, you gain it? No. And there are examples like Brother Wilcox of people who who haven't done that. So I think that stage four um, doesn't necessarily have to be this big, bad, horrible experience. The way I see it, it's a little like going through puberty. Um, for some people, adolescence is a pretty lousy time that has an enormously negative impact on the rest of their lives. They become drug addicts, or they develop other substance abuse problems. They develop horrible body image problems. They start binging and purging. Uh, some become parents when they don't want to become parents, or they shouldn't become parents. Some drop out of school, and they, they, they remain functionally illiterate for the rest of their lives. Uh, some people have a really hard time during their teenage years. And, you know, similarly, some people have a really hard time in stage four. No matter what, questioning your faith and finding contradictions and limitations in your belief system is going to have some unpleasant aspects to it. I do think that is unavoidable. So, likewise, I don't think anyone went through puberty without at least a few embarrassing, uncomfortable, and maybe even disturbing experiences. It's part of the process. That said, some people have an over an overall wonderful experience as teenagers. For them, adolescence is the beginning of bigger and better things. It's when they make some of their absolute best friends, friends that they're going to have for the rest of their lives. It's when they find that they have a talent or a passion for, I don't know, certain things like water polo, for writing, creative writing, for cheerleading, for 19th century literature, for theater, for physics, for for giving service, uh, for computer programming, or for any number of wonderful things. They, they they claim them as their own. For some, adolescence is a time of making new goals and achieving them. It's about getting straight A's for the first time. It's about going with uh, their team to a state championship. It's about learning to drive a car. It's about willing, winning a scholarship. It's about good things. Adolescence can be a great time when people grow, develop, and thrive. And so can stage four. Stage four can be like that too. The way I see one of the defining one of the defining characteristics that separates happy stage four believers and miserable stage four believers is that happy stage four believers are comfortable seeing things differently than the stage three believers that they, with whom they come into contact. So as I said before, Fowler teaches that stage four belief is about taking responsibility for one's own beliefs and faith. Based on my experience, happy stage four believers are the ones who inherently and maybe even instinctively understand that being a truly independent thinker and believer means that no one else on earth sees things exactly the way you do. In order to fully transition into stage four from stage three, I have to feel comfortable with my beliefs even though there is no group out there that's going to validate them entirely. And that's what it means to be independent, right, folks? 
Uh, it means that you live with people and you interact with them and you work with them and some of them you like, some of them you love, some of them you're indifferent towards, some of them you hate. Some of those people are going to agree with the things that you believe and others will not. It's very unlikely, however, that anyone will agree with all of your beliefs. So if I'm really a fully developed stage four believer, I won't care one way or the other. <laughs> and I think a really good example of this is the Apostle Paul. Paul didn't care what anybody thought about his beliefs. I mean, not in a way that changed his. He shared beliefs with many of his fellow Christians, with his fellow apostles, but he also had beliefs that were entirely his own. And you know what? On the whole, I think Paul was really okay with that. So the question is, how do we be happy, thriving stage four believers instead of angry, whining stage four believers? How do we transition into stage four belief in a way that deepens our faith instead of destroying our faith? How do we develop that level of independence? That, my friends, is exactly what I would like to talk about in a series of podcasts here on Mormon Discussions. For the next few months, I would like to explore with you some habits and practices of people who transition into and live happily in sta uh, into stage four. I sincerely hope that this time we've shared together has been beneficial to you. I hope that you feel you have a better understanding about the way other people regard faith, and even more importantly, about how you yourself regard faith. Until next time, may the Lord warm your shoulders.
you'll remember who you are. He will mold your life and change your willing heart. Come on to Christ. Come on to By His grace, be made holy again.